listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Hello, I'm Robin Whittaker, and you are listening to a special crossover episode between us here at By the Well and two wonderful folks from... Working the lectionary. And they are Brendan Byrne and John Bottomley. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about... Um, Working the lectionary and who you are for listeners that don't know you? Sure. Um, my name's Brendan Byrne. Uh, I'm a Uniting Church minister currently in, in congregational placement. And with John, I'm co-host of the podcast Working the Lectionary. Great. Thanks, Robin. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to being by the well um, <laughs> this afternoon. Uh, work, I work with Brendan on this um working the lectionary at Brendan's Invitation, which has been a gift to me in my sort of leisurely retirement. Um, but I do fill in some time as uh, chairperson of the Religion and Social Policy Network at the University of Divinity, yep. um, part of a small house church congregation that um, is in the uh, Port Phillip East Presbytery and occasional uh, daily exercise at the local football park. <laughs> Very good. Mm. <laughs> well, it's it's great to have you doing this, and I I was excited to invite you in for this episode because I love the focus you have on your lectionary podcast on work mm. and economy, and I'm hoping that will help us perhaps think a little differently yep. about our readings today, which we should introduce. It's Pentecost week ten, um, and we're going to focus particularly on Genesis. Chapter 32, verses 22 to 31, and the Gospel reading, Matthew 14, 13 to 21. And we might give a nod to Romans 9, 1 to 5, and the psalm along the way. But we're going to start with Genesis. Yep. So what do we want to say about this kind of well-known but bizarre story? Well, I go back to my days as a theology student to begin with and um, I recall Howard Wallace's uh, lecturing on this subject and and it was a great privilege to have Howard as one of my Old Testament lecturers and Howard explained how this reading is part of that tradition within uh, the Hebrew scriptures which speaks about the darkness of God the the otherness of God, which means that when humanity encounters God's qualitative otherness from our own perspective, we sometimes come to uh, problematic outcomes as a result yeah. of encountering this otherness. And this is part of those notions of awe and fear that we find in the Hebrew scriptures that are not about us living in terror of God, but being reverent of and attentive to this otherness mm. of God. And, and and I think we encounter that in this reading in the, the sense of the, the stranger. Yeah, the stranger man. And it's a disruptive reading because we're where kind of it shifts in a few points, right? He starts wrestling with a man and then the man we find out at the end is God. There's some twists and turns. Well, do we? Oh, oh, well, yes, okay. I'm jumping ahead. That is a question. Um, uh, for those who've 
I wonder a bit a bit of context. We're in this sort of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob narrative. These so-called patriarchs of Israel, and at one level this story functions as a renaming of Jacob. Mm. Um, He will leave being renamed Israel, and we get told he has two wives and two slave girls. We should read slave girls as really concubines, Mm. Um, and there's 11 boys. Um, There might be girl children. They're not important enough to name. Um, But the 12th child, Benjamin, will come along, and these will be the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, So this is at one level functioning as a kind of almost a, a, a blessing and a wrestling and a strange call renaming identity story. Mm. Um, but there's so many layers to unpack. Yeah, uh, and, and, and the, the, the context of it for me is fascinating because it's part of this cycle of stories in which Jacob has proven himself to be a not terribly nice character, mm. a trickster, uh, a bit of a, a fraudster, really. Yep. And he's in the process of returning from uh, his father-in-law Laban's lands. In fact, he's on the run from yeah. Laban, having already been on the run from his brother Esau. And and, and so he he's caught betwixt and between these two poles, as it were, Laban and Esau. Mm. And you know he he's at this crossing point. Yeah, and yeah. Sorry, John. Well, I think he's brought to the crossing point <clears throat> because he's brought into the um, what I would call the prevailing ideology of communism of of, of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, the last book I published um, before retirement was called um, "Hard Work Never Killed Anybody." Okay. And and that could be um, Jacob's sort of swan song because it actually get, ends up um, not so much killing him but wounding him. Mm. So after his sort of betrayal um, of his brother, he he grows up to be a really hard worker yep. and he goes to all this effort to, to prove his worth by his hard work and every time he thinks he's made it, the system betrays him, whether it's his uncle or whoever. Yep. So he ends up, um, in a sense, confronted with this sense of um, the system's not working for him mm. and where does he go with that? So he's not prepared to give up his belief in the virtue of hard work, so he, he absolutely kills it. You know, like mm. he's, he, he loads up everything yeah. for this journey home. Yep. And... Um, and, and the journey brings him to the turning point, which is a profound turning point for anybody who's been injured by their work. Mm. And the work injury becomes his um, awareness of a greater power um, in his life than his own efforts. Mm. And his woundedness um, becomes... Um, his salvation, if you like, it becomes the basis of him getting a new name because in the wounding he realises that God has been at work in all of this mm-hmm. to bring him to this point of um, um, disillusionment with what he believed would be his salvation and an awareness that he actually had to find a new starting point in his trust in the promise that had been made to his ancestors. And so the whole um, shift here, I think will speak strongly to anybody 
who listens to this with an injury from their work or from their experience, which has brought them to a new understanding of their dependence on God's grace for who they are and where they might go. Yeah, and their identity. So often our identity is deeply tied to our work, right? Profoundly so. And that that can be good. I mean, that that, Mm. might be natural. I don't know what you both think. But um, he finds blessing in the new identity, I guess. I found this a fascinating way to look at the story because you've made me realise this, you know, early on part of the setting up of the scene is he sends all his possessions, including Mm. his family members, Mm. which in a patriarchal society are possessions, across the stream to keep them safe and finds himself alone and there's something in there about you can have all the possessions in the world and you're still alone to face God in the night. Like, well, but, but is he trying to keep them safe or is at oh. this point is he still, still trying to game the system by which he's been wounded? Mm. Because that other side of the river is where Esau is and he's oh. coming from that direction. And he Jacob has already sent emissaries across the river yeah. to try and slow Esau down and now he's sent his family across the river. You think he's trying to kind of almost buy them out or yep. yeah. maybe? Yep, a- absolutely. Yep. He, yeah. He's still trying to game this system. Yeah, interesting. But it's, it speaks to the power of, um, of if you like, um, capitalist ideology or yep. any sort of work-related ideology that connects um, identity to uh, effort, mm. human mm. effort. Mm. So... Um, it, it takes, uh, in many cases, a, a significant painful event to break the hold of that ideology on the human heart. Yep. And that's what I think is happening here for um, – well, that's what I read into it. That's how I listen to it. Yes, through that lens. It, yes. it, it, um, <coughs> you know, and this is what lenses do, right? They help yeah. us see things in the text and mm. explore things we might miss. And, and we have a contemporary example of that in the disruption caused by COVID. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the media is full of stories of people whose identity was invested mm. in their work and in their understanding that it was their job, their work, that would bring them to a place of, if you like, salvation. Mm. But the disruption of COVID that has come along and broken into all our systems yeah. and has been profoundly wounding for many people has at least for some of those people in that process mm. caused them to re-examine what the basis and the yeah. foundation of their identity as a human being is. Yep. Yeah, there's been a lot of reflection. And and with that, I think one of the tensions that I struggle with in this story, um, it goes back to where you began, Brendan, with this this encounter with the other. <laughs> because this encounter with God, yes, there's the new identity. Yes, there's a blessing, although he has to fight for this blessing. Like he hangs on to God and says, I will not, well, if it's God, mm. says, I won't let you go without blessing me. But then he's also wounded, right? Mm. So the woundedness stays and sits alongside mm. this blessing and this identity. Mm. And maybe there's something there and it's hard to extract ourselves from the capitalist system, from the woundedness of work. Like, you know, it. it, it ha- I guess there's a question in there about how much does the woundedness remain part of who it, we are or does it have to? It, or- it remains part of who we are. Yep. Um, so um, the first person that, I employed to provide support for people bereaved by work-related death was a woman whose son was killed at work. Mm-hmm. 
and she spent 18 months as a volunteer worker at our agency and then um, we gauged together that she was ready to work. She wanted to work in this space. She's still employed in Uniting, Mm -hmm. uh, doing this work for over 20 years now, supporting bereaved families. So that's how um, deep a healed wound is and I think um, two members of our congregation um, who are working in the public service in mental health, both mm-hmm. who have had um, hospitalisations with their own mental health um, issues. So again, I, I see that the pain of their experience is um, the turning point. Mm. And there is also, I think, a really helpful reading of this from Indigenous um, Storyteller. So Father Glenn Lowry at our congregational retreat earlier this year mm. actually told us this story as a restorative justice story and he told it in relation to the, 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 um, the practice of, um, of dealing with someone who'd committed a serious crime within an Indigenous community where they would be speared in the leg. Yep. And the point of that was that this was a decision of the community, that this was the appropriate punishment, the appropriate level of pain that needed to be inflicted on that person for the harm and the pain that they'd caused the whole community. Mm -hmm. And Glenn's point was that from that point on, that say it's a man, that man would, would know that he has to depend on the community for killing kangaroo meat for him or... For, mm. for his his livelihood, um, that he would always carry the injury as a reminder of his um, own perpetration of harm. Yeah. Um, but because the community has acknowledged that he is um, uh, sorry mm-hmm. for his the harm he's caused, they will gather around him to support him. Yeah. And so the the, the 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 wounding in this story um, may well be that the point, I think, that connects with that Indigenous um, storytelling, that mm-hmm. the pain becomes, sorry, the response to the pain of the community or of the of the ancestral spirits is what keeps him, keeps the wounded person um, alive, not only alive but refocused on living a productive life. Mm. And in what I've heard too... Um Aware of their dependence then on exactly. others, right? So yep. we stop yep. because, you know, part of the capitalist system is we all yep. get told if you strive hard enough, right, mm. you um, you succeed, you can create your own mini kingdom, I guess. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm. Um, and actually what one of the things we discovered during COVID, and I don't want to speak as if COVID is over because it <laughs> is not, no. um, but during lockdowns and, and some of the worst times of that is how much we actually needed each other. Mm. Um, mm. Yep. And, and I mean, the other layer here, of course, is, you know, and this is a more traditional interpretation, is this wrestling in the night. I mean, we know many of us, I'm an insomniac, we, we, we wrestle, right, with our mm. demons, whatever they be, mm. um, in the night. There's something about the symbolism of darkness and the spiritual grappling with identity and blessing and woundedness and who we are. You've raised a really interesting question, uh, yeah. Robin, um, about whether, uh, I mean, it's it's a question that I remember from my student days, which Bruce Barber would have asked, and that was, how do you know that you are wrestling with demons? Mm. So what's your discernment 
of the spiritual nature of that wrestling. Um, and <clears throat> I've been talking um, with someone who is currently in a in hospital mental illness, and her greatest fear is of the darkness because mm-hmm. for her that is um, punishment. And so my conversation with her was about um, the promise of God to be in every sphere of life, which included the darkness. Yes. And where was God in the darkness? And what she'd been taught by the church about sin and evil and darkness, Mm. while there's a truth in it, it's not that absolute a truth. It's not its power is so great that while it might seem to be shutting out God, it doesn't. Mm. And, you know, God's intention is to come through that, to be part of the, the, the life-giving energy that's hidden in there. Mm. Um, yeah, and, I mean, the, maybe the comfort in a story like this is that God is found precisely in the darkness. Exactly. And that, yeah, we could uh, – who mm. are we wrestling with <laughs> in our inner selves? What, what yep. part of that sometimes self-doubting voice, that anxious voice, what part of that is actually – God, or can we yes. rethink it mm. as God meeting yeah. us in the struggle? And and in in that concept of darkness, of mystery, of mm. the stranger coming at night, modernity has its own mystery religion. It's called economics. <laughs> you yeah. know, no one quite understands how it works, or even if it works at all. But it has its celebrity high priests and. It has its influences and, and all that sort of thing. But as some dissenting economists like Thomas Piketty and Thomas Shedlicek and John Quiggan and others have demonstrated, the, the scale of their influence compared to the actual veracity of their prognostications is, is out of all proportion. <laughs> mm. And the the problem is is that this mystery religion we call economics makes a huge amount of promise. And as John said, it's that thing about work hard enough for long enough and by dint of sheer hard work and willpower you will be able to resurrect your life into something mm. other. Yeah. You'll be able to liberate yourself from the cycle of wage dependence or whatever it may be. Yeah. But the reality is is that mystery religion leaves in its wake every year tens of thousands of people who are killed, wounded or otherwise damaged by its outworkings. But in this reading we have the darkness of God that comes to Jacob in the night and wounds him but in that wounding reconstitutes his life. And, and breaks him out of the system that we were talking about earlier in which he continually tries to game but which continually backfires on him. Yeah. And, you know, unlike the mystery religion of economic ideology, which leads only to appropriation and co-option of human life and leaves behind unhealed wounding, the wounding of God that that comes to us in the night is redemptive and restorative. Mm. Yep. And, well, we need to move on to the gospel mm. reading, but I want to pick up some of those threads there and, um, yep. Yep. you know, bringing in economics is, well, 
we get to Matthew, we've got some redistribution, we've got some yeah. all sorts of interesting things going on. Uh, so let's pick up that thread. Sure. So Matthew 14, 13 to 21, mm. often known as the feeding of the 5,000, I want to say plus, mm. that's just the men, women and children. Mm. And the context here that I think is really important, um, particularly if we think of this in terms of ancient economics, is the story right before this <laughs> is the story of the beheading of John the Baptist. So mm. Jesus, we, we pick up the story with Jesus hearing about John's death and he withdraws to kind of reflect and grieve, we assume. Mm. Um, But John's beheading happens in the context of a different feast and this is a feast at Herod's palace where there's dancing and luxurious food. So we also get a contrast of two types of feeding stories um, that we need to sort of juxtapose here. One where the elite would have been invited and fed very Mm. well um, that relied on reciprocal relationships and um, political kind of gain. Mm. Uh, so those kind of dinner parties you have when you really want to suck up to other people and make sure you're invited to their dinner party versus the kind of feeding story we encounter with Jesus. Mm. So what did you notice in this reading? What do you want to pick up in Matthew? I mean, it's it's very well known, right? So again, we've got to disrupt some of our familiarity yeah. perhaps. Well, I, I think we have to begin with scarcity, Mm. And, and scarcity is a fundamental of modern economic ideology because scarcity argues that or acknowledges that resources are finite, but that finite nature of resources helps to regulate the market so that when a resource becomes depleted and rarer, the costs associated with its production and consumption go up Therefore, its use will come down. Therefore, we're actually preserving a finite resource. Mm. But in truth, what scarcity leads to is overproduction and hoarding and vast inequalities. I mean, we are sold daily this lie that there's just not enough food to go around. You know, that food is a scarce resource and that water is a scarce resource. But the truth is the industrialised West produces enough food and uses enough water to feed the entire world many times over on a daily basis. And then we waste so much of it as well. And and that's exactly it. We waste so much of it. And that waste is a result of overproduction and over-hoarding that derives from this principle of scarcity, which is at the heart of modern economic theory. Yep. And I mean, for me, that maps on to what I know of the ancient world where um, that scarcity was probably more obvious than it is in at least our modern middle class culture, which mm. is where a lot of us listening will probably be mm. located. Um, you know, <coughs> One of the things that always strikes me in this story is that the people left leave filled, satiated, uh, and that would have been a rare thing. If mm. you were of the working class, so to speak, <laughs> in Jesus' day, um, enough food on your table, enough calories mm. would have been a daily struggle mm. and actually feasting to the point of fullness 
would have been a rare thing. Um, and, of course, that is true for so many in our world still today. Uh, absolutely. And, and But it, it, it's interesting that the disciples' initial response to the people <laughs> is the <laughs> response of economic scarcity. Yes. We, we don't have anything here. Let them go off into the towns and buy stuff. Yeah. Irrespective of the fact that they may not have the means to purchase that stuff and irrespective also of the impact on the people in those towns of a horde of people all arriving on them <laughs> yeah, all at once. It's you know, like all the relatives turning up at Christmas suddenly, you know. Yeah. Um, so so the, the disciples' initial response is entirely in accord with modern economic notions of scarcity. Mm. Let the market sort it out. Let them deal with it. Yeah, we don't have enough. That's right. Yep. But but Jesus' response is is one of compassion that's not just theoretical solidarity with them. It actually demands a response, an action. Mm. And, yeah. and then Jesus almost co-ops them into that by sending them out, right? They actually have to go carry the food, so yep. they get almost retrained. Yep. Uh, it's a great retraining story. <laughs> um, I think that the um, the sort of dynamic that Brendan has described is actually at the beginning of the reading. Okay. So um, the reading says, now when Jesus heard this, he heard about the violent brutality mm. of the other meal. He heard about the death of his cousin. Yep. Um, and 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 the political undertones of that whole thing. So, why wouldn't you just take a break? <laughs> you know, like. Yeah. Um, and so there is in that movement, um, if you like, a sense of his emptying. Mm. He, he just needs to just sort of take a break to have some space to gather himself. But it, as soon as he's aware of the crowd coming, he looks at them with compassion and there's the abundance straight there. So there is this sort of um, sense, I think, in, in, in spiritual direction of the importance of emptying, of, of being mm-hmm. able to let go, or not even let go, but to, to, to acknowledge the feelings of um, sadness, of grief, of yeah, when you've got nothing else to give and you need to withdraw or... Yeah, yep, yeah. Yep. And, and, and in honouring the feelings, you're actually being true to yourself. And, and I miss that the Christian community is really bad at that in the Western world because yeah. we're so caught up in trying to prove our value with work. Yes, that and we don't, doing. That yeah. we don't actually understand the rhythm of prayer and the rhythm of a, a spiritual discipline that validates having a break, taking time out, being attentive to the spirit. Um, so Jesus comes to this sort of um, in incident um, on top of his game, if you like. I mean, he yeah. <clears throat> he knows who he is and he knows what he can do. And I'm probably a little bit sort of um, – I'm not too hard on the disciples at this point because okay. I think they're doing what they think is best, which is, as Brendan has said, play the system or, or follow the, the yeah, rules they, of the system. Mm. Yeah, they're being normal in their world, right? Mm-hmm. This isn't an, a reasonable response. And, and so Jesus, in a sense, uh, accepts them in their, um, their understanding of what might be helpful, mm. and, but he then turns it around. And I, 
I think this is a warning about about Christians being helpful. Mm. You know, we're we're so caught up in the charity sort of mentality of the late nineteenth century as a response to capitalism mm-hmm. that we haven't really moved beyond what the market demands of us as community service providers. Mm. And and we're so caught up now in the privatization of community services as a as a uh, uh, something that's building the church's property wealth. Oof. Yeah. You know? Um, so I think what happens here is that Jesus sort of understands that they're doing, in a sense, what society would think was a sensible thing, but he wants to open their eyes to what God might be calling them to. Yeah. And, and, and it is a calling into solidarity. Because once they open their hearts to the possibility that these few loaves and fishes might have something to, to offer and they listen to Jesus offer his blessing over the food and then they start distributing it and, by golly, then they start picking up the leftovers. Yeah, There's a whole experience there of, as you said, being retrained in what it means to be helping. And, and if your helping is not producing solidarity, if it's making me feel good and the other person remains in their in their um, hunger. Yes, yes. Yeah. That's fitting into a, a, an economic system that is fundamentally unjust. So, mm. the, the, the justice in this is is actually the acceptance of people. I think where they are in their struggles with <laughs> making ends meet. Yep. But finding a way to come alongside them that opens their eyes to a new possibility and. Um, Mm. I'm hoping that you'll have a bit more to say about that last verse, Robin, than I can come to t- terms with. But, I mean, in, in my Jerusalem Bible, it says something like, and those who ate were about 5,000 men, and the Jerusalem Bible says, not counting the women and children. <laughs> and, yeah. and Why count them? Well, the word count is a trigger for me at the moment because um, Indigenous Australians are saying we were counted in 1966. Now we're asking for a voice. So I'm I'm trying to work out what's what's this. What does it mean to what, be counted? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or not counted. Or not, not counted. Not counted in this case. Yeah. But it does seem to me that that the way Matthew's framed this is inclusive but diminutive. Yeah. Um, I I think we well I think we get that in the New Testament in that we get sometimes obvious disruptions and then we of of the yes. of the system and mm. one one of the systems operative here is patriarchy mm. and then sometimes we get that just reflected mm. so yeah. the fact that you would count the men but not really bother counting the women and children because they belong to the men i think is maybe just reflecting a cultural norm but the fact that they get mentioned at all suggests that this is a much larger crowd so we've also got something like you say we've got hints of inclusion mm. and actually such vast numbers. I mean, 5,000 is, sure. let's be honest, probably an exaggeration. That would yes. be a huge amount of people given what we know of the population of villages around this part of the world at the time. Um, so we've got um, eschatological overtones going on here with feasting or, the, you know, all these mm. Hebrew Bible narratives about, you know, yep. at the end you'll be filled, God feeds you, this feasting, and, and I think that's part of the abundance mm. Going on, yeah, but but there, there's a a articulation of abundance that leads off John's mm-hmm. point earlier about this kind of diminutive inclusion 
the abundance that we see here is not the wasteful abundance of overproduction and hoarding that we see today. Mm. I mean, the, there was a report released recently that showed that Western industrialised nations have used up so much groundwater in the last century, the actual Earth's axis has tilted. Yep. Mm. So, so our wastefulness and our hoarding is... Um, mm. impacting the very planet on which yeah. we live. And it's not just through climate change, folks. It, yeah, it's through direct action of hoarding the, uh, ab- and absolutely. greed. Yep, yep. But in this passage, there is uh, an articulation of abundance that leaves abundance in reserve for mm. those who are not yet fed. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. unlike contemporary notions of abundance which are about my possession and you know if if the third world or even if the homeless bloke at the local supermarket gets some crumbs off the table well and good Mm. this is a story of abundance almost as extraordinary as the abundance that has been provided kept in reserve for those who are not yet fed yes Mm. for those who have not yet come but will yeah I like that. Um, we've got just a couple of minutes left, so I'd, I'd love your last thoughts. I think these are actually – we didn't plan this th- – well, I didn't plan this this precisely, but this has been a really good week to have you both here from working the lectionary because I think um, both readings have invited us to think – maybe you think every Bible reading does, but <laughs> <laughs> to think about economics and work and, and exactly what systems are operative here. Is there anything else you want to sort of say as we as we wind up that we haven't Look, touched I think, on? Um, one of the things that I find is the lectionary is both a gift and a trap. So yep. as a younger preacher, I tended to just go for the reading and focus it. Um, but I think it's been important for both of the readings today to look at what was happening before we got to the reading Yep. Um, so that we understand what's happening. And you used the word in relation to the genesis of um, kingdoms. This is an issue about sort of kingdoms. Kingdom, yep. And and I think that is, uh, applies equally. We're, we're looking at two kingdoms here. Yeah, we are. Um, um, you know, the kingdom of, of um, not just Herod, but the whole Roman Empire and all of that might stand for and the kingdom of God and what that might mean. Um, but it means something about that sort of feasting and, and yeah. fullness. So I, I'm struck. Um, the more I'm sort of working with Brendan on that is how often the Bible just brings us back to these sort of two kingdom yep. themes. Um, and uh, I think that, that um, it really is calling on the church um, to recover our confidence in speaking about the kingdom of sin, of e- evil, and, and the powers that underlie that and the harm that they do and the kingdom of God and the gift of Christ's death and resurrection and yeah. and the grace that's available to um, followers of the way of Jesus to 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 um, endure this system and perhaps to transform parts of it, but certainly not to be um, bowed down by it. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think if I was going to preach on the Matthew, I'd be inclined to read the Herod story first and, and look yes. at this as these are two types of feasts in two types mm. of kingdoms, mm. one that leads to death, mm. leads to reward for a few and death mm. uh, for those who oppose it, and that reflects lots about our society right now. Mm. And then the, the Jesus kingdom that, as you say, has abundance left over for those who will yet come. Um, I was going to say something else, but it's left my head Brendan, <laughs> Look, I, I think this exercise uh, that John and I are trying to do through our podcast of thinking about work and economy mm. through the lens of the lectionary is also about the need for Christians and the church to recall that economy is a theological term. Yeah, It, it didn't become a technocratic term until about the 17th, 18th century. It's a theological term that describes relationship and the basis upon which relationships operate and are constructed. Mm. Mm. And when we talk about things like scarcity and abundance and the, the narratives that run through the whole uh, patriarch's cycle in the Hebrew uh, scriptures we are being called to reflect on the fact that if we as Christians have lost the theological meaning of economy, it is because we have become co-opted by modern economic ideologies. Mm. And we need to break out of that co-option if we are to speak Mm. into the woundedness of the world and to speak of a way of life that is about fruitfulness, not productivity yes and not uh, i see the church all the time we are operating out of these models of scarcity at every level yes and it does not lead to helpful and flourishing behavior it actually no. leads us as the church to do our own hoarding right that's, that's right um so there's all sorts of ways this plays out that's right and and, and to be captive to the ideology of achievement yes and the despair that results mm. when we don't meet the demands <laughs> of that idol that's a powerful note to end on. Thank you. Um, you might be listening to this on Working the Lectionary, but if you're not, you've been listening to John Bottomley and Brendan Byrne from Working the Lectionary and uh, we'll put a link in our podcast notes. But thanks both for being here. It's been a lovely conversation. Thanks, thanks for, for having us. Wonderful. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.